Welcome to New Life Miami, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nlmiami.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. We set the stage. Say that. So good. We set the stage deals with serving God and excellence. We set the stage a while back ago was a, was a series that we did here at New Life. And um, many pages and many notes. And I went back and I, and I said, this is what our church is. I remember that series. And when we ended that series, I said, this is who our church is called to be. And what we did with our code was we pretty much um, concreted that series and said, this is exactly who our church is, fourth code. We set the stage. We're going to serve God in excellence. So because I don't have four Sundays necessarily to go ahead and, and, and go through the series again, I'm going to grab some very important parts of it, and I want to re-teach it and, and, and just re-share it with you guys again. Many of you guys have not heard it, um, and I just want to share about what it looks like to serve God in excellence, what it is to set the stage, what stage are we setting. I'm going to start off with a quote, and it's a quote from the one and only William Shakespeare. Maybe some of you guys remember this, but if not, here it is. Ready? Shakespeare once said this, listen to this, life's but a way walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Everyone say no. No. Yeah, no. No. You see, Shakespeare had a weird way at looking at life. He had a weird way at looking at life. One that when I read this quote specifically, I would not agree with it. Not at all. See, when I read this and he talks about that life's like a walking shadow. Okay, yeah. A poor player, hmm? Who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot. He's definitely wrong there. Full of sound and fury. And then he's definitely wrong here as well, signifying nothing. I read this and I say, you know, Shakespeare's wrong in this quote because our lives definitely signify something. Can I get an amen? And, and I believe this, our lives signify something great. We've taught here at church something greater than ourselves. You know, praise God that we could take that stress off of living for ourselves, that we don't have to do that that we could actually live for something greater than ourselves, all your stress should just come off you right there. We don't live for ourselves. We live for something greater. And, then he's, and, and I want to make sure I correct this. It's not a tale that is told by an idiot. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of life. He is it. So when, when he says this quote, I, I truly believe this. It's not a tale that is told by an idiot. I want you to know this. Our lives are a lives that are written by a king's hand. How dare you? I don't think he was pointing to him. But I read between the lines, and my God is no idiot as he tells my life and his story through me. Amen? He's no idiot. So will your life be heard? Because he says in here that your life will be heard no more. You will not be remembered. Because... 
I don't want that in my life. I, I truly want this. I hope that my life will always be heard and remembered. But here is the highlight. Here's all caps. Ready? Only, only if it's mentioned with Jesus. If my life could be mentioned with Christ after I go, then amen to that. If not, don't mention me at all. So, so yes, we want our lives to be remembered and heard for the work of Jesus Christ in us and through us. That's why we said that together earlier. I want to read a, a passage, just two verses, and, and, and you'll know more or less where we're at once we read it. And I want to introduce to you an individual by the name of Andrew. If you're writing notes, you can write that down. Who is Andrew? And we're going to play a game of like, where's Waldo? You know, you remember that game when you were little? How many of you guys love the where's Waldo game, right? How many of you guys like me were so frustrated with the where's Waldo game? Where is this darn little guy? Okay. Where's Waldo? Well, where's Andrew? And who is Andrew? I want you to know a little bit about Andrew because the truth is Andrew is not really mentioned much in scripture. Andrew is really not. Like if I tell you, give me one of Jesus' disciples' names, who are you going to say? Peter. I know, Peter. He always gets it. <laughs> Peter. You know. Give me another one. All right. Thomas, because yeah, you know about Thomas. And the, Give me another one. Paul was not one. I heard Paul. Paul was an apostle. John. Bartholomew. James. All right. All right. Who's Andrew? Who's Andrew? In John chapter 1, verse 40 through 42, it says this. It says, one of the two heard John speak. And he followed him, followed Jesus, and it was Andrew. It was Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew, this Andrew that we're going to talk about today, he's actually Peter's brother. Verse 41 says, he first found his brother Simon, who is Peter, Peter, Simon, Peter, and he said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated, we found the Christ, and he brought Peter to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. Everyone say, he brought Peter, he brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus. In John chapter 1, it's, it's an important passage, because in John 1, John is, is describing the calling of some of the disciples. And as he's calling him here, he's, he's with John the Baptist, this, this Andrew, and Jesus steps to the scene and he hears John the Baptist's word spoken of Jesus, and he leaves John the Baptist to go be with Jesus, and he finds out, you know, I don't have time to read the whole passage, but there's a part where Jesus is walking, and he looks back, and he tells him, what do you want from me? And they're like, well, wherever you go, we're just going to go and follow you. Because our leader, John the Baptist, told us that, Behold, that you are the Lamb of God. So we're just going to kind of like follow you and see what's going on here. And when Andrew recognizes who this Christ is, that he, Jesus, is the Christ, he runs and who does he grab? He grabs someone that he loves, that the first person that comes to his mind. And he says, I know who I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell my brother, Peter. Peter would really love this because Peter is a zealot. Peter's very passionate. And, and he's going to really love that I, that I found the Messiah. And we, we see this story unfold in John chapter 1. We see right off the bat, yes, he's the brother of Peter. He's actually Peter's younger brother. And then when you look at the life of Andrew, he's actually the least known disciple of the four of the lead group. If you did not know this, Jesus had 12 disciples. And in those 12 disciples, he had a lead group of them. Peter was one of them. James was one of them. John was one of them. Those were like his main three 
but also Andrew went where the other ones didn't. It was almost as Jesus had these main four in places where the other ones didn't go. And he was the least known of the main four. We always hear about Peter. We always hear about James and John. But, but very few times actually do we, do we hear about Andrew. Andrew was the first of actually the first of the disciples to be called by Jesus. It's, if you're taking notes, it's in John chapter 1 verses 35 through 40. He, he's the first to be called by Jesus to be his disciples. And, and as we look at the life of Andrew, because I'm going to make a key point with him, we see that he's not included in some, in some very important events. Events in where we see Peter, events where we see James and John as well. With Jesus, for example, in Matthew 17, I don't know if you've ever read it, but go and read it. There's this amazing thing that happens called the transfiguration. It's amazing. The two prophets show up and, and they begin to speak to Jesus and they're all transformed and glorified and Peter, James, and John are like, whoa, should we make shelters here so that we could just like sleep over and, and have a good time with the prophets? And Peter, James, and John were there. Andrew wasn't. In Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 37, there's a raising of a dead girl. Peter, James, and John were there. For some reason, Andrew wasn't there. Um, in, in, in Matthew, um, in chapter 14, verse 33, there's a prayer also in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John are there, but, but Andrew's not there. But then there are other times where he's featured in this inner circle. There's, there's a reason why I'm giving you some history. In Mark chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus leaves the synagogue. And when he leaves the synagogue, he takes James and John, Peter and Andrew, and they go to their house, to Peter and Andrew's house. And, and, he, and, he, and, and he goes with only those four. Well, where are the other ones? So we see Andrew is still part of an inner circle. At times he was and at times he wasn't. In chapter 13, Jesus speaks privately. He brings them aside and speaks privately to Andrew and Peter and James and John and not to the other ones. So, so there was something special about Andrew, though it's not mentioned. But there's something that I really want to tear at and, and I really want to deliver today. And it's this, that when you look at Andrew, he so often is the disciple that actually brought people to Jesus and introduced them personally to him. He was known to be the one that introduced people to his master. He was known to be the one that, that just brought people to Jesus. He just found a fire in doing that for some reason. He, he was responsible for introducing his, 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 I think we would all agree with this, his more dominant brother, Peter, to Jesus. He, he goes to Peter in chapter 41 and 42, and he says, we found him, we found the Messiah, come, come with me. And Peter goes to see, well, let me see what my little brother really, really is talking about. When he goes, he, he finds this Jesus fellow, and, and Peter gets enraptured with it and says, whoa, man, it really is him. And Peter now, too, begins to follow Jesus. But, but who is responsible for leading Peter to Christ? It's Andrew. Because, you know, he's the little brother. He could have been like, I finally have one up on my brother. I'm going to kick it with the master and not even tell my brother. So that way I could get some notoriety and my brother could finally just take the back seat. Right? He could have done that, yeah? But he introduces the one he loves to Jesus, you got to come and check this out for yourself. you got to come and see this. In Mark chapter 1 verse 29, we see how Peter and Andrew, they, they shared a house in Capernaum. And, and some more interesting stuff about Andrew, he 
they operated a, fish, a fishing business together. As a church, we went a few years ago to Capernaum. And we saw the destruction of Capernaum, which is still destroyed to its core. We got to see more or less the house of where Peter lived. They say they built a massive church on top of it, but you can still see it. And you get to see the water where they left right from Capernaum to go fishing. It was a beautiful sight to be there. And be like, man, this is, most of Jesus' earthly ministry happened right here in Capernaum. This was his base. Peter and Andrew were lifelong companions with the other set of fishermen brothers, James and John. Other brothers from Capernaum, they were the sons of Zebedee. So all these four guys, they knew each other since childhood. Their, their parents knew each other. They went to the same synagogue. They played manhunt together. They, you know, they fought together. They did things like, you know, when you were young and you used to run around the neighborhood and you had your group and that and that, you know, all that. They were in the same group. Their dads probably did business in and out with each other. The four of them shared common spiritual interests before they met Christ. Apparently, we see that. We see that in John 1, 35 through 42, we, we see that they take time off their fishing business. And what do they do together? What do these sets of brothers do? They go and they go hear about this Baptist, John the Baptist dude. So they go out together on a little trip. And, and, and they went to the wilderness where John was preaching. And these brothers became disciples of John. They rode together. I don't know, do you guys, what's that called, road dogs or something like that? They were road dogs, whatever you want to call them. And as they were kicking it with John the Baptist, learning from John the Baptist, seeing some crazy things from John the Baptist, Jesus steps into the scene. And that is where they first met Jesus, out in the wilderness. Come on, stop for a moment. I love that people meet Jesus in the wilderness. Whatever, I'm not even going to get into that. <laughs> you thought you needed to be in a palace to meet Jesus. And Jesus is like, nah. I step into wildernesses, if that's even a word, right, so you can meet me. <laughs> and then they return to their fishing. They remain together as partners in Capernaum. And then Jesus takes a little stroll through Capernaum, and he calls those four disciples to be full-time ministers of the gospel of Christ. He calls them to be disciples. What does he tell them? Drop your nets and follow me. Anyone, God, ever told you to drop your nets and follow me? My God. Man, God's presence is here. All four of these guys wanted to be leaders, obviously. And Jesus begins to train them for leadership. And what do we see at the end of Peter and Andrew and James and John? All four of them played and, 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 and played an important and filled important roles in the early church. And Andrew was the disciple, listen to this, with the least drawn attention, with the least attraction to his name. Everyone say the least. <laughs> Andrew was considered one of the least of the disciples of, of attention and attraction. But in the New Testament, his name doesn't even appear that many times, only nine times. And just briefly, quickly, just skims through it. I, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. Verses 1 through 9 for a moment. A story that many of you, if not all of you, have heard. If not, you're going to hear it yet again today. In John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. You've all heard of that? Let's go back and, and just in case, let's catch something that maybe we missed. 
John chapter 6, verse 1 says, After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is by the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seen a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that they may eat? Verse 6 says, but this he said to test him. Of course, Jesus knows where to get bread. You should just call, if they come and say, you're calling me, but you missed church. You should be in church today. <laughs> you're missing an amazing service. All right, here we go. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7 so Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for all of them, that every one of them may have a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, you guys see, you see that, right? Verse 8, there's one of the nine times that it's mentioned, just one of the nine. But I love that even when Andrew's name is mentioned, who does it mention it with? Oh yeah, Peter's brother. <laughs> We've preached this before, right? Don't you hate that? Because I'm that, you know, I'm the little brother. So I'm always like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so's little brother. How many of you are so-and-so's little brother? Big hug. Big hug. I know. You're always like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so's little brother. Even in the scripture, it says it here. It says here, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother. Like, why did you have to say that? Andrew's good enough. He has his own name. Look at verse 9. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down, and there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number of 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Everyone say, nothing is lost. Yeah, in Christ, nothing is lost, man. Your story, though you might think it's lost, man, there's a reason for your specific story. And with your story, with your life, nothing is lost. Come on. I'll change the whole message on that right there. Nothing is lost. So therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with all the fragments of the bread, leftovers by all those who had eaten. Then those men... When they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Everyone say, Andrew. Who is Andrew? When you read John chapter 6, all the way down, you see here that all the disciples here are lost and they're confused. Jesus asks them an amazing question. There's a massive multitude of 5,000. We know that when you study the scripture, it was more than 5,000. When you count the women and you count the children, that could have been tripled the number. Who knows? But it definitely was more than 5,000 people. And Jesus says, where are we going to find this bread? And where are we going to find food for them? And, and all the disciples are, are all confused. And, and they're all running around. And, and Philip gives his two cents in. And, 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 and they still can't come up with the solution. And, and, and Jesus is testing them to see if there's a faith that is still stirred up. Because, man, you've already experienced water turn into wine. And some other some amazing things that you should know I could create something out of nothing. And he's testing them. And then out of nowhere, Andrew steps up to the scene and he says, um, Jesus, I ran into this young boy. It's not much, but I know he has five pieces of bread and I know he has two fish. 
I mean, that's all I, that's all the input I could give. I, I want you to truly just, just recognize what Andrew does here. Because here's Andrew, and if I was Andrew, everyone say, if I was Andrew, <laughs> yeah, at least me, I would have done this in my mind. Oh, there's a, there's a young boy here with five loaves and two fish. I'm not going to say that out loud because I'm not going to sound stupid because I know for sure five pieces of bread and two fish are not going to feed over 5,000 people. So what are we going to find food? I have no idea. I would have said, I have no idea. I would have been like, I'm not going to say that out loud. Because I'm going to sound dumb if I say, well, I saw a little boy with five pieces of bread and two fish. But come on, we know just by common sense that five pieces of bread and two fish is not enough for over 5,000 people, yes? I'm going to be honest with you, on a hungry day, five pieces of bread and two fish might not be enough for me. Come on, can I get an amen? Come on, some hungry people. You know exactly what I'm talking about. These people were hungry. They were traveling. It was hot. They were burning calories. Their stomachs were grumbling. And Jesus asks a question, where are we going to find food? And he does something that none of the other disciples does. He stands up and says, because, you know, they sat down when they spoke to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, there's a young boy who has five pieces of bread and two fish. But what is that among so many people? I love what Jesus does. He didn't use Philip's money. Remember Philip's money? What is so much money amongst so many people? He didn't use whatever other ideals might have been thrown at him. But there was something in Andrew that seemed to understand that no gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. Come on. And what a lesson this is. That so little could be used to accomplish so much. And this was a testimony to the power of Christ. And Andrew stands up and he says, well, I might not have the answer of how we're going to feed all these people, but I do know that I ran into this boy with five pieces of bread and two fish. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to highlight, and I'm going to say it boldly, exactly what Andrew was doing. Ready? Here it is. Andrew was setting the stage for a miracle. I don't know if this makes sense, but I know to you, God, all these things make sense. So all we have is five pieces of bread and two fish. I'll set the stage. You work the miracle. I'm going to go get the boy, okay? Yes. Come on. <laughs> Jesus like, bring him. Man, I just feel like, you know, boxing the devil today. How many of you feel that sometimes? Just want to fight. All right. But, but here, is, here, is this, here is this young Andrew. And he goes and he grabs the young boy, 5,000, over 5,000 people ate of a young boy's five pieces of bread and two fish. All because Andrew set the stage. What do you mean he set the stage? What do you mean he set the stage? Here it is, ready? Here's how he set the stage. He introduced the boy to Jesus. He introduced nothing to something, to someone. Or someone that could bring something from Nothing. That could turn something from nothing. Come on, nothings. Come on, nothings. Yeah, you never had a pastor tell you you were nothing, huh? Come on, nothings. Someone turned us into something. That's what we believe here. We are nothings that he makes something. We're just five loaves of bread and two fish, baby. That's all we are. 
And that's all we want to be. All we want, we don't, we don't want to be the miracle. We want the miracle to always be Jesus. We just set the stage for the miracle. Come on. We don't want the glory. We want him. I, I think about Andrew and I think about what would have happened. Ready? Peter would have never preached to thousands his whole life. Think about what Peter became and who he was. Peter would have never even preached to thousands on the day of Pentecost. Remember that day? 3,000 people then were baptized. But the reason why Peter was able to preach and the reason why Pe Peter was able to lead the early church is because Andrew first introduced him and set the stage by introducing Peter to Jesus. And all the other things Peter accomplished for God's kingdom, man, there was a seed. Do you understand that? Andrew is going to get into eternity one day. And when he walks into eternity, the Lord says, look at everything that you did for my kingdom. And Andrew says, how did I do that? He says, because you brought a boy with just five loaves and two fish. And look what it created in eternity. Because you introduced a man named Peter to me. And look what he did for eternity. I ask someone this in a meeting, and I share this all the time, so forgive me for being redundant, but here it is, ready? I always say this, who's greater, Billy Graham or the man that introduced Christ to Billy Graham? Huh? Can you imagine when that guy goes to heaven, he walks into the eternity, and he's like, hey, all these jewels are yours. He's like, the heck did I do? You introduced a man by the name of Billy Graham. And that was enough. I mean... I mean, just think about this for a moment. Setting the stage, what, what, what does that mean to you today? We could all learn something here from this story. And here it is, ready, that the glory is not always in performing the miracle. Do you want to say that so you can know that? Say it then. The glory is not always in performing the miracle. But here it is. But the glory is found in the one who makes room for the miracle. Why? Because he does it for something greater. He does it so that Christ may be elevated, not them. So it's not about the individual, but it's about the purpose behind what and why the individual does what he does. That's it, man. And it's not about any of us. It's not about any of you. How many of you could rejoice and say it's all about God and his glory? So what is the purpose for what you do and why you do it? Is it for Christ? Is it for his glory? If it is, we're called to make room. If it is, we're called to set the stage. It's not for our glory but to be seen, but, but for his glory to be manifested to everyone that we could introduce Christ to. You know, I wrote this down and I mean this, that if you want to find the greatest joys in life, if you really want to find great joy, I, I, I want to just share this with you. Here it is, ready? Just make some room. Write that down in your notes. You want to find some joy? You haven't found joy in a long time? Here it is. Make some room. Make some room. Come on. How many of you are hoarding deep down inside things in your life that you shouldn't be hoarding anymore? Do we have to like break down what some of those things are? How many of you, think, how many of you are holding on to things still that God's like, really? You, feel, you still feel necessity for those things? Everyone say this. Make some room. 
Yeah, if you could just make some room, if you could just do what we're teaching you on this fourth code, if you could just set the stage, and if you could just call out and cry out to God, man, to perform his goodness, I promise you that you will find joy in being the stage setter, and you will find less joy in being the one who stands on the stage that gets all the light and glory. You know what all the light and glory does? Stresses you out, man. It brings you to a panic. But I am satisfied with un matillo y un clavo. I will put my hand on a hammer and a nail, and I will hammer and nail away on whatever stage needs to be built. But be very careful that you ever ask me to stand on the stage. I just want to build a stage so that Christ may be magnified, and that's good enough for me. I'm fine with a hammer. If I need to substitute a hammer for a mic, you, you bring it. You, you give me the hammer and you, you give me the nail. That's why I love all the people that do big things and, and I love all the people that do those small things because sometimes we feel that those small things are smaller than those big things but you have no idea how important it is because people lined up these roles and they're able to sit here today because you lined them up in perfection, man, with excellence. People, people come up here early and they set up the system and they're like, oh, I just set up the system. But what you don't understand is that, that it's being recorded and there's an app and it's being traveled. I've gotten text messages from all over the place, people hearing the message through an app. I'm like, how is this small nothing creating something like this that people are hearing the gospel from all different places? Maybe we're not a massive church in attendance, but I promise you this, we're a massive church in those who listen to what's going on in this place. You want to know why? Because it's a group of us that recognize that, yeah, maybe it doesn't seem like nothing, but if in God's hands, it could become something, man. You'll be amazed. I'm not even lying and I don't have time to walk you through stuff. But you'd be amazed how recognized and how amazing this small church is. But it's okay. We don't have to talk about those things. You're going to see fruit of it in eternity. I'm going to see fruit of it in eternity. And though we might feel like it's nothing, embrace nothing. Because nothing in God's hands becomes something. Great joys and just make room. Make room and let God perform his goodness. You don't always have to have control. Say, I don't have to have control. That hurts, right, for some of you to say that. I don't always have to have the answers. I don't always have to speak and give reasons and explanations and et cetera and et cetera if you want to write that down. Man, the truth is we can find a better way. If we could just set the stage, if we could just trust in Christ and believe that he is able and he will perform for his goodness and for his glory whatever he desires. How many of you can say amen? Here it is, nothings. Oh, man. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says this. Instead, God chose the things that the world considers foolish. Come on. In order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those things that are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all. And used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Everyone know this today. Make some room. I want to go a little bit deeper in making some room, if, if you don't mind. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 4, if you could turn there. In 2 Kings chapter 4, make some room. Find some joy in making some room, church. If you could put your eyes on verse 8. 2 Kings 4, verse 8. 
I'm just going to read it and let, let the word do what the word does. Ready? It says this. <clears throat> now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem and where there was a notable woman, a great woman, a woman of great respect. And she persuaded Elisha, the prophet, to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. So hold on, stop. Because this is not about man at all. This is about that statement right now that you just read. When she saw Elisha, she didn't say anything great about him. All she said was, this is a, a what? Holy man of God. It pointed back to God. God's with him. It's pointing to God here. Don't get so caught up in Elisha that you, that you lose the focus on making room for God. This is deeper than just making room for the prophet. This is more about making room for the God that the prophet represents. Okay? Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by regularly. Verse 10, I underlined it actually in my Bible because it says something beautiful. Please, let us make a small upper room. Uh, let us make room. Let us make room. Honey, baby, I know you're like the leader of the house and, you know, you want permission. I have to kind of like walk you through stuff. But baby, please, this is what our family needs. Let us make some room. Mm. Mm. Honey. You know how things are going on at home right now. But honey, please, the man of God is here. Let us make some room. How many, how many of you guys, how many of you guys right now just got to stop and say, I, I just got to make some room already. I just got to make some room already in my life. Baby, I, baby we got to have dinner tonight and we got to talk. About What? We got to make some room. Some room. You got to buy me a bigger house. I'm not talking about that, baby. <laughs> we need to make some rooms about some important things that we're not making room for. We need God to, to be back home with us again. He, God hasn't been part of our house and part of our life for a long time. Come on, someone. Someone say it's time to make some room. You know, I, I talk to people. I talk to a man right here. I talk to some people and, 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 and they're struggling and, and, and it's time to make room in all areas of our life. It, there's friendships that need you. Make some room for God in your friendships. There, there, there's, there's ministry that needs you. Praise God, man. We come to church every Sunday, but we need you here. We do. We really do need you. So make some room that you, could, that you get to give here. You know, in all areas of your life, finances, make some room. Give God some glory with your finances. Come on. Every aspect of your life, personal, relational, ministerial, emotional, make room. Let's keep reading. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there. Are you guys catching this? Because <laughs> when you put a bed for someone, you're, you're basically saying, like, make yourself at home. Because <laughs> if she really... You know what you do, right, when you want people like, to, to not really stay in your house for long. 
You just don't let them feel comfortable. You don't make them feel comfortable. Can I take off my shoes? No, please leave them on. Can I have a cup of water? We don't have any of that. We got some sour vinegar. No? You got some food? Yeah. I ordered some Chinese food two weeks ago. Would you like some of that? I'm going to heat it up for you right now. You make them feel real uncomfortable. And you'll say, oh, leave quick. I'll leave real quick. But this woman says, come on, honey, let's, let's make a bed for the man of God. And come on. And let's put a lampstand there. So it will be whenever he comes to us that he could turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and he laid down there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, he says, call this Shunammite woman. And when he called her, she stood before him and he said to her, say now, look, you have been considered for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. I don't need no king. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, um, Elisha, she has no son and her husband is old. Come on, everyone say this. She feels like she has nothing. This is deeper than just barrenness. This is deeper than just not having children. This woman is at a point of her life where she feels like what she needs, what she has, she has nothing. And I need something already because I have nothing. I'm tired of nothing. So her nothing in this story is she doesn't have a son. She's getting old, and he's getting old, and, well, Elisha, you could read between the lines. So it says here, so he said to her, call her. So when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Everyone say this, ready? You shall embrace something. I, I know I came to you in a season of nothing, but if you just remain faithful, soon you will embrace something. Wow, I wonder if that means anything to someone today. You, you might have, we might be speaking in a season of nothing today. But if you embrace and, and if you hold steady and if you remain faithful, if you stay constant, if, if you don't waver, if you continue in the firm foundation, man, by this time soon, next year, you're going to embrace a something. You're going to embrace the sun. And then he says, and it goes on and it says this. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. And the woman then conceived, obviously some time had passed, and she bore a something, a son. When the appointed time had come of what Elisha had told her, verse 18, and the child what? And the child what? Everyone say, something grew. Her something grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and we don't have a story. Then Elijah comes back, and he, it's a crazy, amazing story, but whatever. Here is this woman, and she makes room. She, she sets the stage. She says, please, honey, let us put God, let us, let us bring him back here, and, and let this man of God remain and do as he pleases when he's here in our neighborhood. Let him stay here. I love that. We, we want him here. Let him stay at our house. Honey, let's set the stage. Let that set the stage that, that we're struggling in our fights lately at night. I could almost sense it, can't you? That they're getting old and, and all they could talk about and argue about is what they feel is nothing is happening. I wonder if you've ever been there in dialogue for so long where you've been arguing and you've been fighting, maybe even with God because you feel like all that is happening is nothing. Ever been there? 
Well, God, when and God, how and God, where? And I don't even see it possible of happening. And you're wrestling and you're fighting because all you have is this label called nothing. And I could almost see how this Shunammite, Shunammite woman and her husband are going through this. But let's set the stage, honey. Let's, let's take the platform and let's build it. Because here is this prophet. I've heard about him and what God does through him. He's in the business into making something out of nothing. And I love this because I keep calling us the nothings. And I truly believe this, that when we read a story like this, if you've gone through something like this or are going through something like this, that hopefully you get to this place. And if you are, amen, that nothings don't faze you anymore. Because all of us in here have that something that God made when we didn't have the ability of it ever happening in our lives. And maybe it's one thing, and maybe it's a small little crop, but that is enough to testify that God could do something with what you felt all along was really nothing. So when nothing's come around again in your life, and they're knocking at your door, and they're haunting you, and they're whispering sweet lies into your ear, anyone ever had that happen to you? You remind those nothings that you serve a God that actually does amazing and powerful things with them and creates them into something. And not just any ordinary something, but I love that her something grew. And I believe the Lord wants us and recognizes. And, and he says, man, when, when these things come again and everything looks dim and you wave it around and and you're lacking faith in the devil and everyone is speaking negative to you. You just remember who I am. That I'm able to do something and I'm able to bring growth into that thing that you thought you would never be able to see. I'm not going to read you the story, but there's an amazing story that correlates. And, and I could speak about setting the stage. And, and I'm going to be close to end once I finish with this story. It's the story of Elijah. Elijah's story, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let me give you a little history of what's happening in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah is the only prophet of God, the only representative of God left. A, a very wicked king and queen destroyed all the prophets of God named King Ahab and Jezebel. Ever heard of them? And Elijah is terrified for his life. And there's a long story that goes with Elijah. And finally God just speaks to him and he finds the strength to... To confront, and, and Elijah has a lot of back and forths in his life, which I love to see that because I can relate to him. So in one of his stirrings from the Lord, he calls out to King Ahab, and to make this long story short for you so you can know what's happening here, he tells the king, hey, this is what I want to do. I want you to grab all the prophets of Baal, your false god that you worship, all of them, 400 false prophets, 400, and I want you to come with me, and we're going to go up to the mountain. It's an amazing passage. And as we go up to this mountaintop, I want you to bring all the children of Israel, and I want your prophets to build an altar, a stage. And as they built this altar, this is how we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to find the bull, and we're going to go ahead, and we're going to cry out to our God. And the God that rains down with fire, he is the one true God. You, maybe you've heard the story. We've preached it here. So Ahab said, definitely, let's do it. So he says, we definitely have the upper hand. Elijah is one man. The prophets of Baal are hundreds of men. 
Elijah is the least probable, he's the underdog, the least attractive, he's unpopular, he's most likely to fail when it comes to this arena, at least in this moment right now. But the prophets of Baal, man, to the children of Israel, they were the attractive candidate. The prophets of, of Baal, they were cultural. The prophets of Baal, they were highly supported. They had more followers and more fans than Elijah. Everyone with me? And the children of Israel were Baal, Baal, Baal. And Elijah's like, how dare you leave our God? They, it was a time of apostasy for Israel. They, they left their one true love and their one true God, and they served other gods like Baal. God's people were lukewarm people. They couldn't answer a word to Elijah when Elijah says, choose today whom you will serve. If it is the gods of Baal, then you bow down and you worship them. But if it's the one true God, you worship him today. They couldn't say anything. They were terrified. They, they didn't know what to say. And, and I truly believe that when Elijah challenges them today, did you forget who your God is, how he took us out of Egypt, so on and so forth? They didn't say anything. I think I know why. Because they saw the numbers. And it wasn't looking good for Elijah. And it wasn't looking for, good for them if they go against the flow and against the culture of their day. We have a culture today. That doesn't flow with, with our culture. Amen? So what happens now? There are two stages being built. There are two altars being set. There's one being set by the prophets of Baal. And there's one being set by one lonely man named Elijah. One is set. And it's the culture that's influencing them. And, and there's another one that's set. Elijah. And he's doing what he feels is right. And I love Elijah's heart. Because in Elijah's heart... He teaches me something that we set the stage even when it's not popular. We set the stage when, when people are speaking ill against us. How many of you guys remember Noah? Noah, you're building an ark. You're setting a stage. Are you dumb? It's never rained. What do you mean it's going to rain from the heavens? <laughs> Stop building. And, and Noah does what? I got to keep building. I got I to keep setting the stage because God says it's going to rain. People spoke against Nehemiah. You're going to build a wall? It's never going to happen. Well, God told us. So I'm going to keep on setting the stage. So we set the stage when it's not popular, when they're speaking ill against us. When people aren't saying anything at all, like the children of Israel didn't say anything to Elijah. We set the stage, come on church, when we are outnumbered and when we are ill-equipped. We set the stage when the enemy seems greater and stronger and more able than us. Come on, ever been there? We set the stage when we don't see the outcome right away. We set the stage when we are left all alone. We set the stage even when culture is influencing us not to set the stage. And who are you to tell me to stop hammering and nailing this stage together? I don't set the stage for any of you. I set the stage, is what Elijah is saying, for one that is greater. You know, in all of these accounts, in Noah and Nehemiah and Elijah, if you know the rest of the story, the the prophets of Baal begin to cry out to their God and hours pass and they're frustrated and they're desperate and they begin to cut themselves and, and, and they're sprinkling blood and Elijah begins to mock them. Ah, where's your God on vacation in the toilet or sleeping? 
He says, come over here and follow me, Israel. And they follow him and they say, Lord, so that these people, the children of Israel, will believe that you are the one true God and that they would bow down their knees and worship you again. I ask you to cry and come down with fire and soak up the offering. And he wets it. He says, don't wet it once, wet it a second time, not a second time, a three time. Why? I wanted to make sure it is impossible for when God shows up, everyone can know that it was him that did it. So he soaks up everything. We all know that it's hard for fire to lick up whatever is wet with water. And out of nowhere, he cries out to God. The fire from heaven comes down. It takes up the bull offering. It rips up all the water, soaks it all up. And the whole stage, the whole offering is on fire because God answered. In every one of these accounts, God's fire answered and fell on Elijah's altar. For Noah, God's rain answered and fell on earth, causing the flood. For Nehemiah, God's strength answered in giving force to build to destroy the attacking enemies. All my biblical accounts show this. Ready? Write this down. When the stage is set, God is ready. Set the stage because God is what? Ready. Set the stage because God is ready. On your notebook, you have Colossians, which we're going to read in a second. But I want to be very honest with you today. I was able to share a message like this to a group of people that were going to go to Haiti and the missions team from our South Church. And we spoke a little bit about setting the stage. And now I want to just talk to your heart for a moment before we end. Think about what setting the stage does to you. And think about what it means to set the stage and to serve God in excellence. What a powerful code this is. Because we do it in excellence for a greater calling than ourselves. For one who is worthy. I'm not a builder. And if you're close to me, they don't even let me paint my house. If you're really close to me, You've heard me say it on a Sunday, and if you've been in my house, my wife doesn't even let me put a frame up in the house. She's like, it's going to be crooked, and it's going to be slanted. I'm like, honey, it's not that hard. I know I could, I could nail a wall, and I could put a frame. I know it. Trust me. You know, it does something to my self-esteem. <laughs> I'm not a great builder, but I've seen people build. You know, you know what I've done with people that work with their hands? I've shaken their hands. Have you noticed people's hands? Who build? They're, they're very strong. They're, 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 they're big, they're, they're thick, and they're very hard. Ever shook someone's hand that works with, that, that works with their hands? Come and touch mine. They're like silk. <laughs> it's like, I put things on, it's like butter, it slides right off. <laughs> Any silk hands with me today? Hey Amen. Thank you, four people. My silk brothers. But you touch someone that works with their hands, it's rough. It's tough. It's, it's gruesome. But let me open to the scripture because I know I want to get there. But you want to know why it's tough? You want to know why? You know why all of that happens? Because there's a process behind them building with their hands. Uh, those men that you shake hands, is anyone here that's not insulted with their, with their hard, manly working hands? Anyone here not insulted? All right, so you're not gonna, you don't want to volunteer today? Okay. 
Amanda, let me shake your hand, Amanda. My father, I'll call him up. He has some hands. Amanda, let me shake your hand. Yeah, this is a man's hand. <laughs> How's my hand? <laughs> Silk. But you know what? There's a story behind these hands. Forgive her your Bible, brother. You're going to be my. There's a story behind these hands. What an awesome person to call up for this. There's a story behind these hands. I mean, they, they really are rougher than mine. You, you're never going to have so many people touch your hands today like, like today. You're going to see. <laughs> but you know what? With, with these rough hands, let me, let me tell you what, what's happened. I mean, nails have been hammered. Thumbs have been nailed by a hammer. Just pop. He, he's, he's probably yelled and screamed before. Ah! I, Wood, when, when you place it, splinters have, have caused deep wounds and have to rip those things out. I mean, that stuff is painful, man. Any people that work with their hands, you guys know what I'm talking about? That's it. Ah, he's so good. Manicures. Worry behind those hands. And, and, and the truth is, from, from the pressure and from the pain and from the hours of using their hands and the, and the hammering their hands and, and almost nailing their hands and getting splinters and glass. And, and I touched my wife's grandfather's hand and I promise you, he could probably just smack someone and shatter them into pieces because it's like a brick. His hand is like a brick. I don't understand my wife's grandfather's hand. It's literally a brick. It's the hand that I've never met before. It's the craziest hand. But let me tell you why. Since Cuba here, he's been working with his hands. And he has stories. He has stories. He has stories. Why are your hands like that? Because you don't understand how many things I've built and I fixed with these hands. You see, you look at me like, what have you done? I don't know. I grabbed my son's Legos and I put them together. Not too big of a story. <laughs> Not too big of a story. But you grab my wife's grandfather's hands or you grab his hands or you grab senior's hands and you grab someone that works with their hands and you sit down for a little while like, what's up with your hands? Oh, come over here. I'm going to tell you a story. You see this one right here. I was putting a four by four in and it fell when I went to catch it. A chunk of it slid off a slice of my hand. I look at my uncle who used to be a fisherman and work a lot with his hands. And one day he was cutting fish and he sliced a, a piece of the fish off and half of his thumb came off. And now my uncle's thumb's half dumb and just crazy and like what I have a story behind this and, and 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 I'm telling you today that when you do the work of Christ it's okay to have these kind of hands this is what I want when that when we do the work of Christ man that when we build and when we do stuff oh there's a story behind this stuff we're we're builders and and we set the stage and we live for the excellence of Christ you see you might think what you see is of nothing and you might see something that disgusts you and you might see something that's not part of the culture and not part of the norm but I promise you if you sit down for a little while or you just look into my life for a little while or have a conversation just for a little while you will recognize that these hands have been building a kingdom these hands have been working for something greater than myself I've been setting the stage serving with excellence so that souls could get into heaven so that people could get to know who Christ is my hands might not look normal to you because I don't live for something that's normal I build and I fight and I struggle and I hurt and I'm in pain most of my life because I serve God with excellence and I live for something that awaits us that is far greater than anything that is here. Man, we set the stage and we serve with excellence whatever it might bring. And that's the reality in our building. And that's it. That's it. I'll take the pain. I'll, I'll take the backlashings.
I'll take the meetings. Someone said, you were exhausted when we went to your house this week. And I told them a little bit of how my day before went. And I said, I think I was, I was just mentally drained and it, and it rolled into the next day. And I couldn't even talk. I was like a mummy. Because I sat for hours just hearing people and counseling and teaching, sharing. I'll take that any day. I'll take the drainage from my soul, chunks of my soul, if it takes for one person to know who Jesus is. Man, if it takes to to rip off slices of my hand, nails and, and pieces of wood in here, if that's what it takes for you to be saved, if that's what it takes to get into the kingdom of God, if that's what it takes to build for the kingdom of God, then let's keep building, let's keep serving with excellence, let's set the stage because we know that at any moment now, as we're nailing and we're setting the stage, at any moment God will stand on the stage and Christ will be glorified. You just stay faithful in building what he's called you to build how many of you are called to this church to set the stage to serve God in excellence here it is ready you keep setting the stage you keep serving in excellence I promise you you keep being faithful in serving and setting and God will be faithful in glorifying and appearing that's it pastor what do you want me to do come on I got a hammer and a nail for you right now let's set the stage how are we going to do it with excellence why because it's not even for us it's for eternity it's for glory it's for his kingdom it's for the name of Jesus to be glorified what do we got to do here we continue in excellence to set the stage knowing that if we're faithful that we're faithful that we're faithful Lord I don't have anything I'm longing for something and I don't have no son yet all I have is nothing we'll continue 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 to be faithful continue to set the stage continue to serve with excellence and you're going to see that right about this time at some point you're going to embrace something and that something will grow set the stage serve in excellence and you will embrace your something man I end with this verse Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 and 24 if you can turn there and just stand with me let's read this and let's believe this Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Colossians 3. 23 and 24. Paul writes to the church of Colossae and he says, and whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it with your whole heart as to the Lord and not to men. Look at how this translation says it. Whatever you do, work at it. Set it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Not for man, not for human masters. Let's keep going to the next verse. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve, everyone say serve. Serve. That's right. You serve the Lord Christ. Look at this translation. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. As we stand today and as we close off, I want you to recognize this. The Lord doesn't want lukewarm, halfway, 
He wants people that are saying, I'm willing to get my hands straight. I'm willing to get dirty. I'm willing to build and, you know, let's go back. You know, you know what, you know what Noah must have gone through mentally, physically, emotionally? You don't think his wife, you don't think his kids know that, you, like I know he's known you're crazy, but you've really lost it now. You're building a massive boat and you're going to call all the animals to come into this boat? It's a fairy tale. Dad, are you crazy? You can't do that. And he kept building. And he kept setting the stage. God, God, God told me he's going to show up. I got to do this. Nehemiah, especially two evil men, you can't do that. Impossible. You'll see. You'll see how we'll build the wall up again. We're going to set the stage. God, God's going to show up. We just got to, we got to be faithful with what he, what's been given to us. Elijah. You're going to build an altar? Are you crazy? It's not going to happen. You know what these 400 prophets of Baal and the children of Israel are going to do? They're going to, when, when they see you fail, they're going to rush you, bombard you, and they're going to, they're going to kill you. It's fine. I'm, I'm just going to set the stage anyways. Because he promised me that if, that if I set the stage, if I make room, then he's ready. So I'm going to build anyways. How many of you... Is God calling you again to make some room? God is calling you just, it's time that you set the stage. It's time that you make some room, come on, and begin to serve God already in excellence already. Come on, make some room, come on, set the stage. There, there, there's some stories that I have prepared for you. And when people come into your life, they say, whoa, talk to me about that. But let me tell you what God has done in and through me, man, for his kingdom. That, that whatever I do, I will work at it with all of my heart as working for the Lord. That I know that I will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who I'm serving, not me. So Lord, here we are. Here's your people before your word today. And you're calling us to, to not stay focused on the nothings. That all, all you're telling us to do is just set the stage, make some room. Continue to be faithful. Continue to serve me in excellence. Just make room. Just keep building. Keep setting the stage. And you will embrace for some of you, you will embrace that that nothing can turn into something physically. But we don't even recognize it that sometimes our story of nothing is actually something very powerful that could bless someone else with a similar story of that same nothing. Oh, you two share that? You two share that burden with me, that pain with me? You two fight and wrestle with God about your nothing? You have no idea that for someone else, that nothing is, is way more of something than nothing. Because now your nothing relates to their nothing. And together, both those nothings. Man, if you're seeking the Lord and you're putting the Lord in its place, it could become a story of something greater. 
of faith in the midst of, of nothing, of faith that is stirred in the midst of, well, I don't see it yet, but I know that my God is faithful. And I've seen him do these things, and I know that my God can. And I love what the prophet says, just continue. She didn't birth right there. She didn't automatically get pregnant. But continue. And soon you'll embrace. You'll embrace your son. I truly believe that this woman, think about what she received. Lord, she received something because she made room for you. And all I want and all we want to do is make room. All we want to do is what called for is we just want to set the stage. Why? Why? So that you may be glorified. Like code three, we just want to give and we get to do this. We get to set the stage. We get to build. And, and if it means not fitting in with the culture, if it means sticking out, if it means getting cut up, if it means being pain in pain sometimes, if it means being drained at times, man, it is so worth it if it's for the kingdom and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I am willing, I'm willing to receive more, more splinters and, and more hammers to my fingers. I'm, I'm willing to, to have more fingers broken and hands twisted and wrists sprained if it's all so that Jesus may be glorified. Lord, like we shared last week, if, if, it, if I need to drink your cup for you to be glorified, give me your cup. I'm going to drink your cup, whatever that cup may be. And I just want to do it in excellence. We just want to set the stage. We... We just want to make some room so that you could stand on the platform that we've built through your grace and that your name would be heard, that your presence would be felt, that your glory would be manifest in Jesus' name. With every eye closed, if you're here today and God is just speaking to you, and he's saying it's you, there's more for you. I've called you to set stages. I've, I've called you to make room, build a platform so that I could stand on and dwell on. If that's you right there and God has directly and personally spoken to you right now, right there with your eye closed, not worrying about anything else, right there where you're at with me because he's speaking to me. Can you raise your hands and surrender it and say, Lord, I surrender all. If that's you, just surrender right there. Say, Lord, I surrender this day forward, I just want to make room. I want to set the stage. Begin to pray that to him. Begin to cry that out to him. Lord, thank you.